Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we continued our examination of the testimony of Travis McMichael, focusing on the first half of the events that took place on February 23, 2020, the day of his fatal confrontation with Mr. Arbery. Those events included McMichael jumping into his pickup truck with his father after his father came into the house saying that, quote, the guy, end quote, that Travis had previously encountered in the neighborhood was, quote, hauling ass, end quote, down the road. McMichael also asserted that he caught up with Mr. Arbery and asked him to stop, and that Mr. Arbery ignored his request and ran in the opposite direction towards an unknown black pickup truck. We ended the episode with Travis McMichael telling the court, What did you do? Got back in my truck. At that time, my dad is obviously seeing this as well. Um, and he is telling me to go down there, go down there, go down there. And do you? Big I do not. Why? I don't want to, I don't know what is going on with this guy. And I don't want to escalate the situation. I mean, my thought at this point now is whatever happened up there, there's a likelihood that something has happened because when I tell him, when I tell him that the police are coming, he takes off running and then interacts with his vehicle, either trying to get in it or trying to avoid it or whatever happened, something's not right. I don't know what's going on. The cops are coming from my thought at this point. I'm not going to escalate this any further. So I'm what's going, your goal at this point? My goal is to let the police know now is to let the police know where he's at. When we left Jason Sheffield's questioning of Travis McMichael, McMichael was testifying that he was abandoning his efforts to pursue Mr. Arbery and allowing the police to, quote, deal with the situation, end quote. It will be up to the jury to decide whether McMichael was in fact truly deciding to abandon the pursuit or whether he was simply making a tactical adjustment to his efforts to detain Mr. Arbery. On this episode, we will present our examination of the conclusion of Travis McMichael's direct testimony, including the encounter that led him to firing three shots, two of which struck Mr. Arbery, killing him. We will also bring back our consulting producer, Paul Butler, for his take on the effectiveness of Travis McMichael's direct testimony. That's all coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We begin today's episode with Travis McMichael asserting that he was driving away from Ahmaud Arbery with his dad sitting on a toolbox in the bed of his pickup truck. The Satilla Shores neighborhood in which he was pursuing Mr. Arbery is the shape of a closed oval with two streets that bisect the oval and only two exits that are relatively close to one another at one end of the oval. 
At this moment in his testimony, the exits to which McMichael refers were back in the direction that Mr. Arbery was running. McMichael describes driving around the other end of the oval, away from the exits, and then looping around the far curve of the oval back towards the exits. He says that he then made a left turn on one of the streets that bisects the oval. That street is called Holmes. I'm trying to get my bearings to figure out what to do, what's going on here. Um, maybe 10 miles an hour. My dad's at the back of the truck, so I, I can't, you know, with a, with a new hip and stroke and all that, so I'm not going to go fast. You know, I don't want to, to okay. hurt him, so I'm making my way towards the front of the neighborhood. All right. Um, I get to Holmes, I decide I'm going to turn on Holmes. Again, Holmes is a street that bisects the neighborhood oval and heads back towards the streets where Travis McMichael first encountered Ahmad Arbery. More than likely, this guy's running back out of the neighborhood. I'm going to go to Holmes because I know that he is not behind me. I know that he's not where I could see down Holmes. And I know where he's been. I can kind of figure out where he's at, and then the police are going to be here at any second. If I encounter them before they encounter what's going on, I could tell them where I saw them last. Maybe we could finally have this guy called. All right, yeah. so your option is to, to go up to the front of the neighborhood. I could have, yes. Okay. Instead, you come down Holmes. Yes. All right. When you get on Holmes, do you see anything? I don't. Not right. I don't. What happens next? I drive down Holmes. I get about halfway down to, I call it dog leg. It's a real light turn. It's got some bushes. What do you mean by dog leg? I can't see the very end of the road. Okay, uh, so it's a it's a visual that you can't see past. That's correct. Okay, so you come down home, uh, Holmes, you say. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah, about halfway down. Halfway uh, down Holmes to the dog leg. To the dog leg. Okay. I see Mr. Arbery, he is in the apex of the dog leg, turning. Is he on the road? He is. What so do you do? I continue, same speed, continue to go that way. When he does the turn to come back down, do you see a truck following him? No, there's no truck at that point. Okay, so what do you do? Mr. Arbor, he was in the middle of the turn and then a few strides and then he was out of sight. All right, when you come around the dog leg, do you see anything? Yes, what do you see? I see the black vehicle at this point is coming to me. And where is Mr. Arbor? Mr. Arbor is with the vehicle, front quarter panel. What side? Driver's side. Doing what? He is running with the truck, um, and then as we're getting closer, he looks like he's he's grabbing the truck at that at that point. What are you thinking? If I'm thinking he's it looked like he was trying to get in the door, but uh, he was with the vehicle, and they were coming into my lane. All right. Are you at all wondering why Mr. Arbery is not? going somewhere other than this vehicle. That was my first thought. Why is he attacking a truck? Why is he hitting a truck? Are you communicating with this truck at all? No. Doing any kind of signals, not arms out the window, telling him to do anything? No. Is he signaling to you? No. You even see the driver inside the No, truck. I didn't. I did not, and no, I didn't see the signals. Okay. Jason Sheffield's aim with this line of questioning appears to be to establish that there was no coordination between Travis McMichael and William Roddy Bryan to detain Mr. Arbery. What happens next? 
I'm at the point I'm coming to a stop. I'm in the left lane, all right? As he is on this truck, they are slowly angling into my lane. He gets to where I'm pretty much in the, they're in the front of my vehicle. I'm at a stop, I'm thinking, hey, I hope he doesn't hit my truck. I don't think they see me at all. They get to 10 feet of my vehicle and Arbery splits from the vehicle and runs down my passenger side between my truck and the ditch. Okay, so he runs that way. What about the black truck? The black truck pulls off, gets back yeah. into his correct lane. Okay. And Mr. Arby starts running. And the last I see is him in front of the black truck, and the black truck is continuing, but it wasn't accelerating or anything like that. Okay. They were broke off from each other at that point. Did they go around the dog leg? Yes. From, did, yes. Did you lose sight of them? Uh, yes. Okay. What did you do at that moment? I pulled the vehicle back up 10 feet and stopped and parked from there. Why did you park there? <clears throat> he is out of sight at this point. They're gone. There's no longer, uh, there's nothing going on in front of me. I'm still under the impression that the police are coming. This guy's obviously, something's not right. He seems dangerous to me. He's trying to get in this vehicle. If the police come, I can give them a good description of what's happening or where they at. Hey, it's down this road or this road or this road or that road. By the side of the state, right there where I was at. Sheffield here seeks to convince the jury that Travis McMichael's only intention was to detain Mr. Arbery long enough for the police to arrive and that he had no intention to escalate the use of force. So now you're parked. You've taken up view. What do you do? Get out of the vehicle, analyze and see what's the situation. You're seeing if dad, what's going on with dad. Uh, at that point I said, where are the cops? Where are the police? Dad said, I, I don't have the phone. Well, all right, the cops had me call. Let me grab my phone. I go to reach for my phone, and I, I look down the road, and I see Mr. Arby running back towards me. I yell at him to stop. Stop where you're at. Stop, and I'm at this point, hey, stop. Where is he running? Where is he running towards you? Is he in the road? Is he in grass? No, he's in the road. He's in the road on, I want to say he's in the same lane. He's running towards you. How? far does he get towards you before you start saying stop? In the straightaway, so it was probably 30 yards. Okay. And you, again, tell us what you do, show us how you do it. Yeah, so I yell at him, stop. You know, stop right there, stop right there. He's continuing, we were in eye contact. Um, he's getting closer, I'm thinking, he's, he's not looking left, he's not looking right. It's not a and the way he's running, it's not a full sprint, it's not a jog. The best way to describe it is like, uh, you got a running back, you're about to throw a pass, and they're they're staged up, you know, they're, they're kind of on their toes, ready to bolt. He was in that stance, I guess, or in that run. Okay. You say to stop, stop, stop where you're at. Okay. And this is a second, two seconds. What do you mean this is two seconds? To how long it took from me yelling at him to stop to realizing that he is coming to me, that okay. I need to do something about this. At this point, he's continuing, still eye contact. I'm at my truck, doors open, I'm on the inside of my door. I see he's coming, I go to grab for my shotgun. As soon as I turn and go for my shotgun, he turns. At this point, he made it to about 10 feet from the back of my truck. My dad's yelling at him, and he runs back. You're saying stop, and then you say he turns around and goes back. Yes. Um, at what point did he turn? 
he was about, like I said, about 10 feet from the back of my truck, but my action of going into my truck is what made him turn, I believe. Okay. He turns, then what happens? I pull the shotgun out, and I start going down there to see what's happening. I said, no, I need to stay... I need to stay where I'm at. My dad's up here in the back of the truck. I know what's going on here. I don't know what's going on down there. And this guy is still irrational. It's, it's still not, something's still not right about this. I'm going to stay right where I'm at. Okay. So I put the shotgun right back, back on the door, pick up the phone, call out. Okay. As soon as I dial, I pick it up to the ear, and I see Mr. Arbery turn and come back. I don't know how long it took. I mean, seconds. You said you just given the cell phone to your dad? Yes. How is it that you decided to call 911 at that moment? Prior to the encounter I just had with him, I asked my dad, I said, where are the police? And he said that he didn't have his phone. And I realized that he has not called 911. And actually, as that was going on, I had to crawl into the pasture, crawl into my truck and go to the pasture floorboard where where my phone was and slid off. And uh, called 911. And as soon as I called 911, I looked, and Mr. Arby has already passed. The dog leg was coming back again. So when he comes back again across the dog leg, did you see anything behind him? No. Do you see the black truck anywhere? I did not. Now, you've seen the video, the video showing him running towards you. Is that what you believe to be that this moment now? Yeah, Yeah, this is that moment. Okay. Yeah. As he's running towards you at this moment, what are you thinking? That I'm pretty sure that he is going to attack. What makes you think that? Uh, The totality of this circumstance, what I just witnessed with the truck, what happened on the 11th, the way that he acted on the 11th, and then his eye contact on me and not looking left or right or pivoting and avoiding where I'm standing, where I'm at on this truck. Are there, in your mind at that moment, are there places that Mr. Arbery could run to? Yes. Are there locations available to run to or through? Yes. Like yards. There's yards, there's ditch. He wasn't blocked. He could have went into this ditch here and, and into this open yard. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Travis McMichael points at a map. Jason Sheffield again guides McMichael to describe Mr. Arbery as the aggressor in this situation. You see in the video, we all see in the video, where you raise your shotgun. Yes. You see that? Yes. Okay. You remember doing that? I do. Why'd you do that? He was closing in at this point. I've yelled at him to stop several times. This one again, I screamed at him, stop, screamed, stop. He is focused in on me and he's at this gate where he's 
Look at like he's about to run. He has the possibility to get this burst out. And if he gets this burst out at this point, at this point when I pulled the shotgun, I wouldn't have time to react if he wanted to get on me or to pull a gun or have a knife or if he wanted to do ill will. At this point, this is when I needed to deter him to stay, to do not come at me. You know, how do you know at this point you have to do that? Because everything that's happened, everything that is going on, and him closing in on me. Like, no, I mean, how do you know at this point that you have to raise the gun, or he'll be, he could be on you like that? From training, from training and prior experience, it's an average of 21 feet for somebody to react, to pull a weapon, and fire two shots at somebody that charges you uh, with a knife or anything like that. Mr. Arby's already running. He's at a pretty good clip. He's directed at me. He sees that I have a weapon. I'm yelling at him to stop, and he's continuing. At that you say point, he sees that you have a weapon. Mm -hmm. How do you know that he sees you have a weapon? What do you do? Do you I do had it? I had the weapon out at this point, and I had it down. Port arms is what they call it, okay. and it's blatant that I had this shotgun. When you raise it at that moment, for the reasons that you did, does it have the effect that you hoped it would? Yes, it did. Which was what? This did. No longer went my direction. Okay. As soon as I drew, as soon as I drew the weapon on him, you could see in the video that he darts to the left and darts to the right and then commits to the right. And he does that. As soon as he darts, I put the weapon back down and move away from my vehicle. I'm making distance. I'm thinking he's going to go across this yard. Well, what if he did? I'll just let him keep on going. Let him, let him run on by. So if he comes around the right side of the truck and decides to bolt through the yard, could it was the yard open? It was. And if he did that, what would you do next? I watch him run on by. It was at this at this point I know the police are coming now, and I know they're going to come from the front of the neighborhood. And if he turns right, he is going out of the neighborhood. Is and I could watch him. I could see him. See where he's going, and he's gone. He is no longer a threat to that vehicle. That he was just interacting with, he's no longer a threat to my father or myself. So if you raise a shotgun, yes. when he runs up the right side of the truck, what are you thinking? That he is, uh, <clears throat> after I turn, or after I point the shotgun at him, when he angles and then he turns and starts making it directly to the truck, I'm thinking, well, he's going to. He's coming back to the truck again. My father's in the back of the vehicle. So? So what? Your dad's in the back of the vehicle, so? Yeah, so he's, the path he's making, he's gonna make contact with the vehicle, he's gonna be around the vehicle. He can jump up, grab dad, or still under pressure that he might be armed, that he could run up and shoot. I'm not gonna be able to see him at this point. He's gonna be, I have a vehicle between me and him. So at this point, I'm a little past my, my door, are you in the crux of the door? I was when he was running, yeah. running to me when I drew the weapon. I was right at the outside of the crux, right at the edge of the door jam. Okay. And then when he turned and went to the passenger side of my vehicle when he flexed, I went ahead and moved to center of the road. He's running back. I'm losing. I'm not going to see what he's doing, what he's capable of, what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to do. What do you mean you're losing? 
I'm losing visual, losing sight of him, losing where his hands are. Because of what? Because of my vehicle. Okay. Because of my truck. All right, so where do you move to? I move to the front of my truck, and at this point, I'm thinking either he's he's on my dad at this point, or he is going to run by, or he's going to see that I have gone to the front of my truck, and he's going to finally turn. Front where? Uh, front left corner panel, turning into it, going to the front of the hood. Where's your gun? Uh, it's in my hands, port arms. Port arms is what? It's, I'm down. I got it down. Both hands on it, hand on grip, and you know, on both. And what are you doing? Coming around, I get to it. I was going to get to the front to the center of the vehicle. At that point, he was right there. If he decided to turn, he'd see me and continue running. Okay. It was what I would what assume was going to happen. I get to the front of the truck, and by the time I get to the front of the truck, he is at the front corner panel on the right hand side, and he turns. And is on me, and is on me. I mean, in a flash. I mean, immediately on me. On you doing what? He grabs the shotgun, and I believe I was struck on that 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 first instance that that we made contact. Um, what were you thinking at that moment? I was thinking of my son. It sounds weird, but that was the first this this the first thing that hit me. What did you do? shot why he he had my gun he he struck me it was obvious that he was uh it was obvious that that he was attacking me that if he would have got the shotgun from me then it was a this is a life or death situation and I, i'm gonna have to to stop him from doing this so i shot did he stop when you shot he did not no he did, did not can, can, can you can you remember everything Every hand, every movement, can you remember those things? No. I know that I was, uh, I know that I got hit, and I know that I was, I was, weaponry, weapon retention, we were talking about it earlier, yeah. with a shotgun or a rifle, it's called the push-pull method, and uh, when somebody's got a weapon, you go to port arms, and uh, you push out and you pull down is what you're taught. Um, I was a stickler with it, with everybody that we trained. That was my biggest fear, that somebody's on a boat and they come up because the pistol's holstered. Rifle or shotgun, you got it in your hand. It'd be easier for somebody to get it from you. So I always exclusively train people to do this push-pull. So it's natural for me. It's, you know, it's, it's trained into you. It's muscle memory. And when this happened, I was in Port Orange, I got struck. And I remember when I came down, I got hit in the top of the head. And he had the weapon in his hand. So I pushed and pulled, still getting hit. And did you get it free from his grip? I don't believe I did. I don't know, I'm, I don't know exactly when or where or if he continued grabbing, but we were together, we were locked up. He was on that shotgun. Do you, you've seen the video we talked about where you see you're being pushed across. Do you remember that? Do you remember where your bodies were moving? I know that I was, I know that he was, I didn't know where I was at, but I knew that he was on me. I knew that I was, I was losing this. I knew that if I was getting tripped, if I would have tripped or if he would have got a lucky strike on my head 
or if I would have had lost that grip on that shotgun, that I've uh, that I would have been shot, or I would have been I would have been in serious trouble at that point. I knew that he was uh, I knew that he was overpowering me, but I didn't know which direction or um, or what mechanics he was doing to to overpower me. Do you? At that time, did you remember how many times you shot the gun? No, I didn't. I, did I thought I shot twice. And but, but you shot it. You you I shot it. Shoot. Yes. Yes. Do you, you know, like I said, do you remember how many times you did? I, I thought it was twice until later on speaking with the investigator that I realized that it was three shots. But um, I shot the, the first shot. I knew I shot. And then the second shot, I shot again because I was still... I was still fighting. I was still, he was all over me. He was still all over that shotgun um, and he was not relenting. So I had, I shot again to stop him. That, set, that third shot, which I thought was second, that, that final shot, my dad came out and he was yelling that he's got his hand under him. I turned around, we got over there and uh, pulled his hand out from under him and realized that he was deceased and I looked up and the police were right there. Um, I stood up, realized that, you know, that I got a gun here and, and uh, that he is, that he's passed away, the police were on scene. So I walked over to the side and put my shotgun down. After that, it was, it was a blur. It was a shotgun, I mean, it was a blur. Do you remember speaking to the police on the scene? I do. Do you remember going back and giving a statement to Officer Nohilly? Yes. Did Officer Nohilly give you an opportunity to reject talking to him? Uh, he did. did. Did you agree to talk to him? Yes. Do you remember having to sign a form and all that technical legal stuff? Yeah, he told me, uh, he gave me my Miranda rights and I agreed to him and agreed to to uh, make a statement. What was it like sitting in the room with Detective Nohilly trying to recall the specifics of this event? Uh, I struggled. I, I was trying to give him as much information as possible. Um, I thought that I did a good job until I've read the statement. Oh, you did a good job at what? At, at giving him a clear in a clear idea of what happened reading the statements now um i was all over the place all over the place in what way in describing what happened giving the dates and the timeline of what happened uh it seemed that i was speaking it seemed like i was reliving the situation i would go to one thing i would say i saw him on on burford and then we lost the phone, but when I grabbed the phone, you know, it was it was just everywhere. I was everywhere. And it was under stress. I was under, this was less than two hours after, yeah. after shooting, you know, I mean, I, I, was, I was not in my right mind at that time. <clears throat> Travis, you, you understand that you've been charged with having an agreement of sorts with Roddy Bryan. Objection. What's the objection? Well, we can get it. It's the way you're describing the charges. Okay. All right. That's the state. All right.
That was Judge Timothy Walmsley sustaining Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's objections to the way Defense Attorney Sheffield is characterizing the charges. Travis, did you ever, ever coordinate with Ronnie Bryan to box in a monarchy? Yes, sir. Did you ever do anything to try to use him as a bookend to try to corner Ahmad Arbery? I did not. Did you want to stop Ahmad Arbery and talk to him? I did. Did you want to stop him and hold him so the police could come and arrest him? That, that was my plan. Yes, sir. And by hold him, I mean, you know, detain him, not let him go anywhere, at least keep an eye on him. Leading. Sustained. Yes. Okay, no, don't, don't answer. It's been sustained. Sorry. Been sustained. Again, Judge Walmsley sustains the state's objection, this time because Sheffield's question was deemed leading. Other than the time that you put your shotgun on your shoulder and the time that you had it in your hands when Mr. Arbery grabbed it, did you ever pull out your gun? No, I did not. <clears throat> I, I had my gun out and was walking towards the dogleg, the first encounter we had on Satilla, on Holmes. But he was already running away. He didn't see it. And Fair I, enough. I asked you, you know, to pull it was, out. Yeah, but, but that, you, I think you've explained you're just putting it back in the truck. Did you leave the house that day with the intention to kill the guy I did that not. your dad mentioned to you? I did not. Did you leave the house that day with Objection. the Objection. Leave it. It's not telling him that he did, in fact, leave the house, leave the house that day. It's did you leave the house that it's a, day? It's a, it's a state. It's a yes or no question. Don't ask me yes or no question. It's a leading. Yeah. Well, it's not a leading if the answer could be yes or no. But I'll. We can debate it all you want, Mr. Sheffield. I understand. Okay. Give me one second, please. Judge Walmsley is sustaining the state's objection to defense attorney Sheffield's question, quote, did you leave the house that day with the intention to kill the guy, end quote. The reason such a query is not allowed is because such leading questions are deemed to be testimony coming from the lawyer, not from the witness. After a moment, Sheffield decides to end his questioning of his client, Travis McMichael, and turns the witness over to the prosecution for cross-examination. Joining us now to discuss Jason Sheffield's questioning of his client, Travis McMichael, is Georgetown professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Paul Butler, thanks again for being with us today. Hey, Carrie, It's great to be here. Paul, what did you make of Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield's direct examination of his client? The conventional wisdom is that people who are accused of serious crimes like murder don't take the stand. In a self-defense case, sometimes that calculus changes because jurors like to hear from the accused person. So even though he has a constitutional right not to testify, sometimes when self-defense is the theory, people will take the stand. The risk is that the defendant is subject to cross-examination. And I know we will, in a different episode, talk about the cross of Travis McMichael, but I thought that the decision to put Mr. McMichael on the stand did not help the defense. Interesting. Why did you think it did not help them? Kerry, I have to say that as an African-American, when I listen to 
Travis McMichael talk about how he, his father, and his neighbor hunted down Mr. Arbery and demanded that he justify his presence on the public street. I was reminded of slave catching and, in fact, empowering white civilians to capture runaway enslaved people is the origin of the citizen's arrest law, which is the linchpin of the defense. Now, maybe that was a reaction that I had as an African-American that the 11 out of 12 white people in the jury won't have. But even as a technical matter, the story that you want to tell when your defense is self-defense, that you didn't start the fight, you didn't provoke the encounter, and that when you use deadly force, it was because you actually believed you had to to save your own life and that that was a reasonable belief. Those are the points that Travis McMichael had to make to the jury, and I think he failed to make any of those points. I want to break down a few aspects of the direct testimony. There was a lot of discussion of Travis McMichael's service in the Coast Guard, and even though he seems to have been primarily a mechanic in the Coast Guard. They spent a good deal of the better part of an hour focused on his training and use of force, the use of force continuum, I think they called it, and his experience with de-escalation and also his understanding of the term probable cause. Do you think that that aspect of the questioning helped his team prepare the jury for approaching the judge's instructions to them about the probable cause necessary to conduct a lawful citizen's arrest? I certainly understand why the defense wanted the jury to know about Mr. McMichael's experience with law enforcement. Indeed, as I was listening to that almost hour of testimony about when Mr. McMichael was in the service and how he learned all of this about criminal procedure, I was thinking that he was probably a military police officer or some other law enforcement agent within the military. And of course, he wasn't that. He was a mechanic, but he had this training. So the point that the defense wants to make is that when Mr. McMichael was allegedly relying on this Georgia law that allows private citizens to make arrests, that in a sense, Mr. McMichael wasn't a private citizen, that he was more like a law enforcement officer. And that may or may not appeal to the jurors. It may appeal because the Georgia Citizens Arrest Law uses terms that might presuppose a familiarity with the law, especially the law of when people can be arrested. And so Mr. McMichael wanted to impress the jury with his knowledge of that law. Maybe that worked, maybe it didn't. It also was an effort to appeal to the jurors who have experience in law enforcement, either as a career or because people in their families are also law enforcement officers. I think that's riskier by the defense. On the one hand, uh, maybe you would sympathize more with Travis McMichael if you're a police officer and you have to make quick on-the-spot decisions that could have enormous consequences. So maybe you have empathy with what you could say is the difficult position that Mr. McMichael was in. On the other hand, maybe you think of Mr. McMichael 
as an armed vigilante. And what he should have done is to call the police and leave Mr. Arbery alone. That's what law and order demands. And so if you are a supporter of the police, that could easily lead you to listen to Mr. McMichael's testimony with some concern. During his testimony, Travis McMichael indicated that when he drove away from Mr. Arbery and William Roddy Bryan around the block, as it were, he was not seeking some sort of tactical maneuver to cut Mr. Arbery off as it actually worked out, but he was seeking to get out of the situation and wait for the police to arrive. I mean, I think I know your answer to this question, but trying to sit in the seat of the 11 white jurors, is any credibility to the idea that he was suddenly trying to disengage from this conflict? I don't see how any juror could invest that testimony with any credibility on its face. It doesn't make sense. Mr. Arbery was just jogging at the point in which he was first encountered by Travis and Gregory McMichael. Travis McMichael said that he didn't see that Mr. McMichael was armed and that he was just trying to get him to stop for a chat. And Mr. Arbery refused to stop. The idea that at some point, Mr. Arbery, as Travis testified, tried to attack the car that Mr. Bryan was driving, or that he became the aggressor against Travis McMichael, it's just not a coherent story. It just, even on its own terms, doesn't make sense. I want to go to one other area that seemed to challenge credulity, which is Travis McMichael's assertion that a lot of the statements he made to police in the immediate aftermath of the shooting were fueled by shock and disorientation. And he tried to rehabilitate his statements about the order of shots, the timing of the shots, and the nature of the encounter with Mr. Arbery that resulted in Mr. Arbery's death. Again, I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear your take on why you think the defense went down that road. Travis McMichael told two different stories about how he came to kill Mr. Arbery. He told one story to the police shortly after the event, and he told a different story when he took the stand in his own defense at trial. And he explained the discrepancies as a function of the trauma that he suffered on the night that he killed Arbery. He said that that was the most traumatic event of his life, and it impacted his memory. And here, what the defense is trying to do is to present Travis as a compassionate person who would, of course, be distressed by taking a life, even if that act was justified. And we didn't see the same level of emotion from Travis McMichael that we saw from Kyle Rittenhouse when he took the stand in his own defense. But there were times when Travis was emotional. And to the extent we can read the verdict in the Rittenhouse case as a sign that the testimony that Mr. Rittenhouse provided was important in his acquittal, maybe because it allowed the jurors to empathize with Kyle Rittenhouse, perhaps the testimony that 
Travis McMichael offer will have the same impact. Every case has different facts. And just from my perspective as a prosecutor, I would say that the facts in the Rittenhouse case are more likely to lead to a verdict of acquittal than the facts in the trial in which Travis and his father and neighbor are charged. Among other things, Mr. Arbery was not armed. And in the Rittenhouse case, there was at least an argument that two of the people who Mr. Rittenhouse shot were in fact armed. So the defense is kind of floundering. I think that they have a sense that their case is not going well. And putting Mr. Travis McMichael on the stand could be something of a Hail Mary pass, given that he didn't actually say a lot that advanced his defense. And in some ways, when the prosecutor got hold of Travis, she really let him have it. Ironically, the only person in this trial that's had the opportunity to speak about Ahmaud Arbery is Travis McMichael. And he spoke about the two times that he believes he encountered him, the one time being on the night of February 11th, and the second, of course, being on February the 23rd, 2020. Do you think with this jury of 11 white people and only one black person that he made any headway in staining the reputation of Mr. Arbery in a way that might at least get a few of the jurors to sympathize with him? You never know. We're not in the courtroom, so we're not able to see the reactions of jurors to the testimony and often their physical movements, their facial expressions are quite revealing. This weekend it was reported that late this week, Mr. Bryan's defense attorney approached the prosecution and asked for a plea. He wants to cop a deal. Reportedly, the prosecution turned him down. And I think that's a sign of its confidence in its case. When the jurors were being selected, we knew that this was a controversial trial in the community and that even some of the prosecutors had to be disqualified because they favored the defense. And I think that created a legitimate concern about white folks in this community and whether they would solely evaluate this case through a lens of race and whether in doing so, that would lead them to find the defendants not guilty. During the voir dire, we learned that it wasn't only folks in the African-American community who had made up their minds about the case, that a lot of white people had as well and thought that just based on the video that they'd seen of Mr. Arbery being hunted down and killed by these three defendants, that they thought that the men were guilty. And so I want to give the jurors, even these 11 white Southern jurors presiding over a trial in which an African-American person was lynched. It sounds like something that might be happening in, in 1921, not 2021. I still want to give those jurors the benefit of the doubt and, and hope that their empathy goes to an innocent man who suffered such a violent and unnecessary death, rather than having the jurors' sympathy go to the white men who killed him. 
Paul Butler, as always, thank you for being with us. It's always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmad Arbery. Join us on our next episode as we begin to present the prosecution's cross-examination of Travis McMichael. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.